0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Aronex podcast from Fathom World. My name's Craig Eason. Later in this episode, we talk about carbon capture technologies that can be installed on ships.
0: It's like stirring uh, sugar in your tea. So, in the beginning, it will go very fast, and then, you know, the uh, capturing capabilities, sort to say, of the liquid decreases because it's almost saturated, and then, um, yeah.
1: And we also catch up with Die Gilpin at Smart Green Shipping. Who's won yet another funding round to help her company realise its ambition of renting out the wind.
2: There's a degree of concern about being first mover. So you could lease a fast rig, you get insurance, both for the technology and against the wind not blowing as we predicted. And what we're effectively doing is de-risking the uptake of new technology for the ship-owning
1: community. But to start with, we're looking at investing in good. Not so much about investing money or advertising your sponsorship to help fund Fathom World and this podcast, both of which are growing and gratefully need your support if you can offer. That's that plug out of the way. But more, I'm talking about financing, investing in the decarbonisation of shipping, the technology systems, the requirements for change. One of the focus areas that we have in our coverage at Fathom World are the companies developing clean tech solutions or new fuels. And we have noticed that it's pretty impossible, almost impossible, to find a good collection of listed companies on stock exchanges that gain a significant part of their revenue from providing maritime cleantech solutions or services. It's not that listed cleantech companies don't exist, they certainly do. But the smaller ones with a particular focus do tend to be privately owned and those that are listed tend to be on secondary exchanges with a low market cap and not tending to give out dividends while they reinvest in product and service development and they also tend to come with lower share prices. There are one or two exceptions of course and they form part of the fathom list that we're building. We started it about three years ago so it's time to dust it off and re-examine it. But the list is short, it's very short. The list of privately owned companies is bigger, but it's not accessible if, say, you want to put your pension into maritime cleantech. But in New York, there's a fund, an exchange-traded fund, an ETF, that is trying to invest in stock in what it sees as decarbonisation and ocean technologies. The fund is a thematic one run by a company called ETF Managers Group. The company has more than one themed ETF across a number of different sectors, including dry bulk, but also in, say, the online gaming sector and something that I never even knew existed before, the alternative harvest or cannabis ecosystem. The decarbonisation fund has been put together with the help of two other US-based companies in the financial sector, Breakwave Advisors, a commodity trading advisor, and C-Switch Partners, a company which is run by Hal Malone. The BC, that's B S E A fund as it's known, it was listed on the New York Exchange about 18 months ago and currently has stock in 42 companies. Over the year and a half, it's not done too badly, especially when one considers the market conditions it's been brought into. It's been set up to track an index that was created to launch the fund, known as the MMDI, Marine Money Decarbonisation Index. Now for me, the titles of both fund and index are somewhat misleading. I spoke to Hal Malone from Seaswitch about the fund to get an idea not only about the spread of companies in it, but also the financial market appetite and understanding of the maritime cleantech market. I'll put links into the show notes and into Fathom World so you can take a look at the fund and index yourselves to see what companies are included. But I started my conversation with Hal about the criteria for a company to be on the index and therefore the fund. Now one of the first and obvious criteria is that the companies have to be publicly listed on a large stock exchange. Market capitalisation and trading volumes have to be significant to enable the index to track the companies and the fund to invest and or adjust its investments in them. And Helm Malone said that a company that is on the list would be one with a deployable or, what he said, near-deployable solution that accounts for a significant part of its business
3: in terms of volume criteria. So,
1: once we sort of sift through, call it the
3: universe of companies against that set of technical criteria, we then really think about the companies in a uh, in a cubic model, and so we're looking for a, you know a company that has a technology that we think will be impactful a technology that is uh, somewhere within the deployment spectrum and that this business either is or has the potential to be a meaningful portion of the company's overall business so the company that would score the highest in that model would be a company that has a technology that could essentially eliminate emissions that was available today that was Uh, a substantial, if not all, of that company's particular business. So given you're studying these companies uh, very intently as well, you know that company doesn't exist today because either the technology is, you know, in an early stage, so isn't, you know, available in the market, or the technology is a small part of a larger business such as Fortzilla, which you mentioned. And so what we're doing and thinking through the companies that we include in the ETF uh, or in the index, uh, and then how we put those between the two tiers within the ETF are really evaluating the trade offs between uh, those sort of three criteria. So, trying to find a balance of companies that have uh, what we think are going to be the most exciting technologies relative to where those are in their stage of uh, development and deployment and then how uh, meaningful of a um, portion of the listed entities overall business that either is today or we think it has the the potential to ultimately be. So that's the... That's the framework in which we think about... Uh, the
1: what interest. Hal also told me was that the fund has not done as well as they had hoped over these last 18 months, but he said that was not a particular surprise given that investors at the moment have had a focus on inflation and energy security, which has made short-term investments a focus rather than long-term investments. Decarbonization and energy transition investments are, of course, not going to give quick returns.
3: From, uh, an investor's perspective, sort of thinking about what was... Uh, in the short term, going to be performing well. These kind of in, these kind of investments that were both larger term in nature and energy transition in nature were out of favor. I, I would be uh, of the view that you're starting to see a bit of a rotation uh, back, and uh, to look at uh, the glass uh, half full, I think. Uh, particularly in Europe, you're going to see the experience that people have lived over the last year actually provide greater incentive and greater motivation to make the kind of investments that are needed to uh, drive this transition because it is ultimately about moving off of fossil fuel dependence to other more sustainable uh, forms of energy. So uh, I think having having survived uh, what was expected to be a difficult energy period over the winter, and now beginning to think about what's the longer term way to respond to the new paradigm that uh, Europe finds itself at the crossroads of, that that these are investments that I think are gonna become more uh, topical and more critical in nature. So from an investment perspective, I I think people that were looking at what could have been the worst case scenario, Uh, in terms of uh, an energy backdrop, particularly in Europe over the winter that didn't play out, are now beginning to think about, okay, uh, what is the longer-term response uh, that...
1: uh, The index and fund will, of course, change as time goes by and are what Hal calls inclusive rather than exclusive when it comes to what companies could be included in the fund and index. This, of course, may be alarming to purists, but maybe not so for pragmatists. It goes back to my earlier comment that there is a shortage of pure plain maritime cleantech stocks that a fund could invest in. Also, there's different perspectives in the US than in Europe. And Hal also said that even the energy companies could enter the list. You know the ones, they used to call themselves oil and gas companies, but they're trying to polish their image. They could enter the index as and when they have a significant part of their focus on cleantech. But then there are also the technologies themselves and their growing maturity. The companies the fund has invested in includes ones I would see as also being in offshore energy or aimed at cleaning up shipping's emissions. But there's also future fuel makers too. But what about other technologies that are emerging? How can they be reflected on the index and in the fund? I picked on two technologies that we've been covering in detail on Fathom World over the last year or so: shipboard carbon capture and I think nuclear you, power. I think you
3: certainly hit on two of them, right? I mean, I think carbon capture certainly seems the more near-term, and I do think we have some companies on the list that are involved in that in different aspects. But that's certainly something that we think is, you know, going going back to the parameters that we talked about earlier. You know, in terms of what's deployable. This decade, you know, carbon capture seems like a technology that from other conversations we're having in the market is something that people are talking about implementing in the you know near term, either in new builds or retrofit you know projects. And I, I think has a more significant impact potential than say the sale technologies or the air lubrication technologies, which are are measured in the high single digits to low double-digit type impacts versus carbon capture you know you're you're talking uh 50 plus percent um depending upon the use case and a lot of the technology so that that would certainly be one i think nuclear longer term is a very interesting uh propulsion uh alternative for longer haul you know heavy you know heavier uh cargo types uh, that are going trans uh, continental I, i'm not certain that's you know, going to be something that we see as investable in the relatively short term, in a way that it's going to be a big enough piece of someone's business to really make sense from what we're what we're looking at, right? Because, as you said, the companies that are going to have to be supporting that kind of investment are probably huge companies, and this, at least for the next little bit, is going to be a, a relatively small piece of uh, their overall business. So, you know. It may fall out a little bit in that criteria. I, I would say it's it's important to note that the way we have structured the index and therefore the uh, ETF is by nature uh, looking to be inclusive as opposed to exclusive, which is why we have the two tiers. Uh, what we call the core tier, which has uh, 20 stocks, and then the uh, tracking tier, which is essentially has an unlimited number of stocks. And so, to the extent there's uh, a company that has earned the margins of some of the criteria we we would tend to err on being inclusive as opposed to uh, exclusive so i i don't think there are a number of companies that fit the criteria from a technical perspective that, that we think have impactful technologies that that we want to include or haven't been able to include i mean we can we can only uh revise the list once a quarter You're listening to the Aeronax podcast with news, stories, and voices about the changing shape of the shipping and ocean economies. Go to Fathom World to find out more and don't forget to sign up for the newsletter.
1: Al Malone from SeaSwitch and I were talking about the companies on the BC ETF ending with me asking how the development of new technologies could influence the fund, including onboard carbon capture technologies. This is an idea that is in its nascent stage, where CO2 emissions from a ship's exhaust can be removed before hitting the atmosphere. There's a growing number of projects and companies advancing this possibility, and one of the leading ones at the moment is Netherlands-based Value Maritime. I'd wanted to talk to the company for a while, as it now claims to have five carbon capture systems on board ships, the latest being one of two being installed on an MR tank owned and operated by Eastern Pacific Shipping. I got to speak to Yvette van der Sommen about this latest installation and how the technology works. So I got to speak to Yvette van der Sommen about this latest installation and how the company's technology works. Now, some background here. Value Maritime is about 6 years old as a company It began life-selling a scrubber system that removes sulphur oxides from the exhaust as well as particulate matter. At the same time, it's been developing this CO2 capture system using a bespoke liquid absorbent. This is their magic ingredient it seems but in essence it is the same kind of absorbent one may find on lamp-based carbon capture systems where co2 molecules attach to it when it's sprayed through an exhaust plume.
0: storing the the co2 and the liquid on board we do that under ambient temperature and ambient pressure so we can basically store it in any tank You know, some things are are, are easier than others, um, but basically the only thing we need is space. Um, So for some vessels, for uh, container vessels, for example, it makes more sense to store the CO2 in, we call it CO2 batteries, which are Twenty-foot uh, container uh, containerized units, and they um, we can store it in there, and then we can really easily import. Just you know, we move the containers as with, with normal uh, offloading of, of containers. But for East the Pacific, we have converted a, a fuel tank so uh, a 770 cube fuel tank because that increases uh, the volume of course significantly compared to a 20 foot container Uh, and uh, it can store a, a lot more co2 which they need because the these vessels typically trade um, Norway, Rotterdam uh, to to uh, to New York or, or Houston, so they need to have this transatlantic um, uh, voyage, and that's why they want to capture um, up to forty percent of their CO two.
1: But the 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 liquid initially has to be stored in one tank. It's not stored in one tank, and then the CO two laden liquid then returns to the same tank, is it?
0: Uh, well, it, it can be in the same tank, actually, because it's, it's just based on the saturating of the liquid. So until the, the liquid is saturated, you know, that's um, then it's done. So technically we can go up to very high percentages of CO2 storage, but um, it all depends on your volume requirements or your volume uh, availability, actually, on your vessel. Uh, which is usually the limiting factor, uh, when you know, when you want to capture very high volumes on long distances.
1: Okay. So, so is this what's happening with the Eastern Pacific vessel? The this liquid, uh, this absorption liquid, is put into a tank, and it's circulated through the exhaust. Is it circulated back into the same tank? Uh,
0: yes. Yes. And yes. then
1: it's and and then once it does that, it will have a certain percentage of CO two. Yes. In its, with And it's sort of certain percentage of its capacity to hold the CO2. It'll exactly. then get, re, then it can be recirculated, even though it's holding some CO2 to capture even more. Exactly. CO2. Yes. It's
0: like, yeah, it's like stirring uh, sugar in your tea. So in the beginning, it will go very fast. And then, you know, the uh, capturing capability, sort of say, of the liquid decreases because it's almost saturated. And then, um, yeah. Okay, yeah, so
1: so guess. in a voyage, you'd need to plan your voyage accordingly to think. Okay, this is the yes. saturation rate. I also saw yes. in the in the announcement with this that the the um, the collection, the percentage reduction is forty percent. Yes, is that a, is that for the whole voyage as an average? Is yes. it or does it vary? Yeah.
0: So, what we offer our hardware for the CO two capture that is part of the thing. So, the module we offer to Eastern Pacific, uh, it can capture up to forty percent. That has to do with the exhaust gas flow and the uh, the the size basically of the CO two capture module. So, that's designed for up to forty percent of their uh, exhaust gas flow. That's one. The second thing is, of course, that's the tank they have selected um should be able to you know to, to capture 40 percent on this transatlantic voyages, you know, under normal uh operations of course. But you can imagine for you know if EU ETS kicks in next year and the vessel also operates you know between Norway Rotterdam, that's at least the voyage it's currently trading on, I can imagine that they want to, you know, do 40% there. Because short voyage they can easily uh, store it on board, and then maybe twenty percent or thirty percent on the longer distances. Because you know it will be calculated on an annual basis, and then they can uh, you know make use of this. So it's really, you no. Know, the goal is to have you know outlets in the whole world, uh, and 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 and. But that that is under development. So you know, for for now, uh, they have to. No, to take it into their commercial, you know, planning and, and to find optimal ways to make use of it. Um,
1: yeah. So that, that that's that, that's two important elements there. One is the ability to discharge this liquid ashore yeah. when you get into port. Um, based in Rotterdam, I imagine that Value Maritime will have that in order mm-hmm. because you've got a, Close relationship with the uh, the authorities mm-hmm. in the country, mm-hmm. um, but for long haul voyages in the future to New York to Asia yeah. or wherever, you're going to need point to point capabilities to be able yeah. to have these kind of agreements to offload this um, this liquid, yeah. whatever. What do you call the liquid? What's its name? <laughs>
0: yeah, we fo- we call it VM liquid because okay. the exact. Um, co- um, what it exactly is, I cannot disclose,
3: um
1: unfortunately.
0: Okay. But uh, yeah, we call it the VM liquid. But you are absolutely right, and that is uh why we love to partner up with East the Pacific and also with Express Feeders and and then some uh, big names uh in the industry, because in order to get these outlets, you know, it's it's like a chicken and an egg story, because we need vessels going to these ports and we need outlets, but we can, you know, we cannot secure outlets all over the world and make the investments with the risk of, you know, of, of not getting um, vessels there, offloading the CO2. So now we are uh, investigating New York and also um, uh, some ports in the UK, specifically for our clients who call at these ports. So that's how we work now. They say, OK, I need this port. Uh, they give a sort of commitment to us and we set this up. So, so it, yeah. is
1: it, would would they, is it, this is going to sound like a strange question, but mm-hmm. um, given that there is the potential value of the CO2, yeah. do they own the CO2 and therefore have they got the capability of making some revenue yeah. from selling the CO2 or is it part of the liquid that Value Maritime owns yeah. and you take care of it and there's the added value for Value Maritime because you've got a liquid that now has some added inherent value because you can take it ashore, remove the CO2 and potentially sell it further.
0: Yeah, so yeah that's uh, that's not a silly question at all but uh, uh, because that's indeed uh, for now we offer our clients uh, uh that we arrange and set up the whole infrastructure so we uh, provide the liquids we uh, set up this infrastructure we, we find the outlets we arrange uh blueprints for ports you know we we arrange everything and the client face pays, uh, pays a fee per ton of CO2 uh captured and offloaded so they are not involved in the whole land-based part but you know we cannot do this alone so we need to partner up with, with you know um, companies in the industry and then of course we can we are more than happy to work together you know if we can do uh, the investment together we can find outlets together you know we 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 can find different ways there but um for now this is uh, we are in charge we arrange it for our clients that's you know maybe the easy the easy uh way to to to
1: see it and the the I've seen a number of announcements in over the last year and a half from Valley Maritime yeah. about other shipping companies. Uh, Sam Skip, yeah, to mind. There's another two, and I can't for the life of me think. There's a couple of Netherlands-based. Yes, so companies uh, yeah, as Skip, well.
0: also uh, BG Freight, uh, JR Shipping, uh, Visser Shipping. That's are the uh, Dutch-based.
1: Yes, uh, uh, yeah. but also
0: uh, non-Dutch bases, Artmore.
1: Artmore. And yeah. yeah.
0: Artmore, more uh, some skip express feeders yeah, are you some... in, are you
1: installing the co2 system or are these now, there's another part to this question are you installing the co2 system or are they beginning with the um the, the sulfur only filtery yeah. yeah module and then can that system and this also is a question about those systems you've already got on board are they installing the um socks only filtery system with a view that it can be upgraded to CO2 yeah. and can those companies that have already got the SOX filtry upgrade to the CO2? Yeah,
0: yeah. so different clients, different uh, approaches uh, there. So we have some clients who are really, you know, being a front runner and also, you know, th- Developed together with us, actually, you know, to, to go on this journey with us to to to, um, to fix this basically, but there are also clients who install it uh, for the mainly for the uh, sulfur um, uh, removal capabilities, uh, so more financially uh, basically, but also keeping the option open for CO2 captures.
1: That's Yvette van der Salman from Valley Maritime, a company pushing ahead with installing carbon capture technologies onto ships. Now this is a story we'll be following and monitoring, not only from the technology perspective, but also the regulatory one. While there are regulations on energy efficiency at the IMO and on emissions trading at a European level, there are some rule wrinkles that need to be ironed out to ensure that if this technology is to mature, it's given the regulatory runway to do so. So keep your eyes on Fathom World for updates. Now, another technology we cover a lot on Fathom World and that I've been talking about in the Aranax podcast is wind propulsion. There's a growing number of companies putting money and time into technologies to provide wind-generated thrust to help cut fuel use. Now, within this, there's a lot happening with investment too. You will know that I've covered in recent weeks, in particular the European Union's Horizon Europe funding, backing a couple of projects and now the UK is also backing projects, and that's die-gilping smart green shipping. SGS has new funding on the back of other funding and backing it received recently from the Scottish government and from the Japanese ship owner Moll, who's taken a stake. So the world looks busy for SGS in the coming weeks and months as they push ahead with testing a system in a remote windy part of Scotland. I've spoken to Di Gilpin on the podcast before, and the link is in the show notes. But this time, I asked her about the business model she has developed, given my focus on cleantech finance. She thinks it'll be better to not only sell a system, but more to lease them out, a pay as you sail idea where you, well, rent out the wind.
2: Yeah, we will sell a solution if somebody wants to buy it. But in the research that we've done over the last four or five years with, with Drax, with UltraVault, with MOL... There's a, there's a degree of concern about being first mover. And so the wind as a service device, the, the wind as a service solution has, has been born out of that um, and, and also born out of our experience in working in renewable energy, where you can use the value of free at the point of use energy to offset the capital costs. So you can lease the kit. So that would be, you could lease a fast rig. You would get with that our routing software as standard which we're developing alongside the fast rig hardware you get insurance um, both for the technology and against the wind not blowing as we predicted which is pretty unique we'd also be providing a full operation and maintenance service and what we're effectively doing is de-risking the uptake of new technology for the ship owning community so that we, who understand how it works, take on that responsibility and the ship owners carry on doing what they do, which is operating commercial ships successfully. A lot of people say, oh, well, you know, the wind is unpredictable. It is much more predictable than, say, a fuel commodity market, which has got human Responses embedded in it. The wind, we just look at thirty or forty years of high-end cast data, and you can see patterns. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there won't be cha- you know, there won't be days when it doesn't follow the probability, but you can. The insurance industry have been developing products like this for onshore wind and, and offshore wind for energy, um, and we, we're talking to the insurance industry about adapting those products for our service. So they look at the way that we do our routing analysis and then we put in an error, a margin for error, and then that goes um, into a product that that then means that we de-risk the wind blowing mm. or otherwise.
1: Di Gilpin from the wind propulsion company, Smart Green Shipping, and the concept of renting out the wind to ship owners. Well, that's it for this week's X Podcast. Just a reminder that I was recently on a trip around the Baltic Sea. Not the best weather for it being the Nordic late winter, but it was a fantastic opportunity to talk to seafarers about how they see the future of shipping and the roles that they'll have to play as it changes. The series, which was sponsored by Seafocus, the creators of Intelligence Hunt, that gives students the opportunity to get a foot into the industry, Two of the three episodes are out and the third one will be released next week. So subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and don't forget to catch up with the changing shape of the maritime industries by logging onto and signing up for the Fathom World Insights to get the latest stories. Until the next time, goodbye.